John chapter 1, verse 14. This morning we are wrapping up the Christmas season. And we're wrapping up this year too, aren't we? Hard to believe, only a few days left in 2014. We're also wrapping up our study of the story of Jesus from John chapter 1, the first 18 verses. In this passage, we have seen three parts to the story of Jesus. The first part that we saw in verses 1 through 5 is the Word. The Word being the eternal self-expression of God. The eternal communication of God. Speaking of the second person in the Trinity, who is Jesus. The second part of the story of Jesus we've seen here in verses 6 through 9 is the witness to the Word. And the witness to the Word specifically here is a reference to John the Baptist, who was a forerunner of Jesus, that he is He came in time before Jesus to go before Jesus and to announce His coming and the coming of His kingdom to the nation of Israel. And then the third part of the story of Jesus, which is the subject of verses 10 through 18, is the work of the Word. Because Jesus is the Word, we're referring here to the work of Jesus. We've already covered verse 10 through the first part of verse 14. And we have found in those verses four aspects of the work of the Word. Four aspects of the work of Jesus. The first aspect of the work of the Word was to be in the world. We took that from verse 10. And then the second aspect of the work of the Word was to come to the world. We saw that in verse 11. And then the third aspect of the work of the Word was to make those who believe children of God. We took that from verses 12 and 13. And then last Sunday morning, we took our time together to focus on John's account of the Christmas story that's found in the first part of verse 14. The fourth aspect of the work of the Word was to become human and live with us. That brings us to the fifth and final aspect of the work of the Word, the work of Jesus, which is our subject for today. And we read about it beginning in the second part of verse 14. Look there with me if you would. It says, We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me, because He existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. 
grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. The fifth aspect of the work of the Word, the fifth aspect, if you will, of the work of Jesus was to reveal God. That's why Jesus came. That was the work that He was sent to do, to reveal God. And you can see that from the beginning words of this passage that we've read just a moment ago, but you can very clearly see it in the last sentence of the passage. At the end of verse 18, it says about Jesus, the Word, He has revealed Him. He has revealed God. He has revealed the Father. The word reveal here should remind us of another book that we're studying together on another occasion during the week when we meet. On Wednesday nights recently, we have begun to study another book written by John the Apostle, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And if you didn't know that and you're interested, we'll pick back up with that in a couple of weeks, starting with chapter 4, which really gets into uh, the futuristic aspects of the book of Revelation. Uh, That word, reveal, should remind us of the title of that last book of the Bible, Revelation. And for those of you that have been a part of it already on Wednesday nights, I told you that the title of the book lets us know that the purpose of the book, to reveal Jesus. Because in His first coming, Jesus was veiled in many ways. Uh, The fullness of who He was remained a secret to many people, if not most people that He came for, and certainly most of the world. Here, though, we go back to the first coming of Jesus in John's Gospel. That's what he's writing about. And what he says to us here is that a big aspect of the work that Jesus came to do was to reveal God. To reveal the Father. To unveil Him in a way that people could see Him clearly. To make Him known. The word that's translated reveal here is the word from which we get our word narrate. And it communicates to us this idea that Jesus is the narration of God. He is the story of God, if you will. The story of Jesus is the story of God. Another word that we get from the word that's translated revealed is the word exegesis. If you've ever heard that word, that's what I'm attempting to do every time that we get together to exegete the word of God for you, to explain that, to disclose that or or unveil it for you or do it as we study it together. Jesus was the exegesis of God. The revelation 
of God. Jesus is the one, the Word is the one through whom God is made known. And as we think about that and and, and go forward in the passage this morning, we will notice together that the Word made flesh, that's the story of Christmas, the Word made flesh, revealed three things about God. First of all, the Word made flesh revealed the glory of God. The Word made flesh, Jesus, revealed, disclosed, unveiled, communicated the glory of God. And we can see that where we began our passage this morning, the second part of verse 14. Look there again. John says, we, and by we, I think he's referring to the apostles, maybe in the select group of apostles, we observed, we saw His glory. Glory here meaning a manifestation of the things that make God, God. John is saying that during the lifetime of the Word, who is Jesus, we had the privilege of viewing with our own eyes the glory of the Word. The glory of the eternal second person in the Trinities. He's saying in, in, in terms we understand, we got to see the glory of Jesus. And they did. With every miracle that Jesus did, the apostles specifically, but the crowds generally, saw the glory of God. And the apostles saw it, meaning they got it. With every sermon he preached, they saw, they heard the glory of God. In the death of Jesus, and certainly the resurrection of Jesus, they saw the glory of God. But I think he's being much more specific than that here. When John says we beheld or we observed his glory, I think he's referring to a specific event that three apostles got to see. John, along with his brother James and Peter, received the great privilege of going with Jesus up on a mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus who, as I mentioned before, in His first coming, in many ways was veiled. Uh, The fullness of His glory was not seen. That won't come until His second coming. They got a preview of His second coming. We call that experience that they observed the transfiguration of Jesus. Before their very eyes, Jesus was transfigured. Uh, No holds barred, no veil, no covering, fully undisclosed before them in all of His glory, manifested in bright, white light. And they saw this, and they never got over it. And John here, when he says, we observed or we beheld His glory, Uh, He's not talking about 
uh, something merely philosophical or, or some ideal or, or something like abstract like that. He's saying we really got to see it. We saw the glory of Jesus, the glory that had belonged to Him before He came to the earth as the eternal second person in the Trinity. We saw that. And they did. He goes on and says here, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father. If you're like me and you learned this verse growing up from the King James uh, you're familiar with that word that we're also familiar with from John 3.16, the word being begotten. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. And the way it's translated here in the Holman and in many modern translations communicates us to us the mystery of that word that we've used for so many years and most of us had no clue what it means. Just begotten. Begotten carries with it the idea of being unique, one of a kind. Hence here, one and only. And I think most of us get it that through faith in Christ, we are made children of God. We've already talked about that being an aspect of the work of the Word was to come and make those who believe on Him children of God. So I think most of us get that. Through Jesus, we're made a part of the family of God becoming His children, sons of God, daughters of God, if you will. And that's a wonderful thing. I think it indicates maturity in a Christian life when we relate to God as a father. As a child to a father. But as we understand that through faith in Jesus we are children of God. What we must be careful not to do. Is think that we're sons of God in the same way that Jesus is the son of God. There is a vast difference between Jesus as the son of God. And us as children of God. That's what this word translated in the old days as begotten. Here as one and only is communicating to us. We are the children of God. But Jesus is the son of God in an entirely different way. He is the one of a kind son of God. No other like him. He is the unique son of God. The one and only In that sense, Son of God. You may remember that in the book of Genesis, that it speaks of Abraham's children and talks of his children. He had more than one child, but he had one special child. His name was Isaac. And though he had another son who was older by the name of Ishmael, when it speaks of Isaac as the son of Abraham in the book of Genesis, it calls him his one and only son. His one-of-a-kind son. His unique son. In that way, he was a, a picture of the Christ who was to come. The glory As of the one and only Son from the Father. That is, we saw the glory 
glory befitting of one who was the one and only Son of God. And it makes sense that Jesus would have glory like a unique Son of God because He was God. And as they saw the glory of Jesus, what they were really seeing was the glory of God. And that takes us back to the Old Testament as well. One of the the special privileges of the era of the Old Testament was for the glory of God to appear to His people. And the fact that the glory of God dwelt among the people in the tabernacle and later on the temple was a, a source of legitimate pride for the people of God. Hear what you have going back to the words from Verse 14 that we studied last week is the glory of God making a reappearance and dwelling among the people, not in an earthly tabernacle or temple like existed in the Old Testament, but in the temple of Christ. The Word became flesh and He dwelt, He tabernacled among us. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says the Son is the radiance of God's glory. Radiance meaning the brightness, the light of God's glory. That is the way that we see the glory of God is to look at Jesus. I mentioned this morning that we're wrapping up the story of Jesus. I hope you understood that, that we're wrapping up the story in these verses. The story of Jesus is never wrapped up, and we don't ever want to close the book on the story of Jesus. It's the story. And we always want to be thinking about it and studying it and reading of it because it's in it that we see the glory of God. Verse 15 here in John chapter 1 speaks more about Jesus, the the glory of God, revealing the glory of God because He was God. John the Apostle, the writer of this passage, once again makes reference to John the Baptist. You remember the witness to the Word from verses 6 through 9? And he's going to come back to him later on in John chapter 1 and and later on in the Gospel of John. He says, John, John the Baptist, testified concerning him, concerning the Word. And he exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me. Now I want you to keep That phrase in your mind, the one coming after me. And Jesus, in a time sort of way, was coming after John, right? We know the story of Christmas, how Elizabeth became pregnant before her cousin Mary. John the Baptist was born before Jesus. John the Baptist made a public appearance before Jesus. He prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. But listen to this. Because of that, some people made the mistake of thinking that John the Baptist was the one, the light. And it would have made sense for them to think that way because in their culture and in most cultures of that time, to be older meant to be preeminent. To come before meant to have a position of priority over the one who came behind Hence the rights of the firstborn that we see throughout the Old Testament and we see in other cultures as we study those ancient histories. But John is correcting that notion. 
that just because in time's sake I came before Him, I am not before Him. I testified, John did, the one coming after me has surpassed me. He's greater than me, much greater than me, because He existed before me. Now you start doing the calculations in your mind, and we go, well, how can that be? Because you've just said that John the Baptist was born before Jesus. But remember that the birth of Jesus was not the beginning of the second person in the Trinity. We've already seen that the Word, who is Jesus, was eternally God and with God. And John says, from your perspective, from a worldly perspective, it may look like I've come before Him, but no, He was way before me. And that's why I'm not the light. He's the light. Full of glory. The glory of God. The Word made flesh, revealed the glory of God. Now the second thing that we see here, revealed as the Word made flesh, was the grace and truth of God. Jesus, the Word made flesh, revealed the grace and the truth of God. Look at verse 14 again. The last phrase, full of grace and truth. Now hear it again from what we read earlier. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying here that as we saw the glory of Jesus, which is the very glory of God, it was full of grace and truth. And it makes sense that the glory of Jesus would be full of grace and truth. Because that's what God is full of. He's full of grace. And He's full of truth. Do you remember the time in the Old Testament when Moses asked God to see His glory? And God basically said, uh, I'll hide you in a rock. And He did. I'll let my glory pass by. And then you can see the remnants of my glory, the the backside of my glory, uh, because you couldn't see the, the full glory of God and live. And he hid him in the cleft of the rock and the glory of God passed by and it was manifested in bright, bright light. And John only got to see, or or Moses that is, only got to see the, the remnants, the afterglow of it. But the primary way that, that God revealed his glory to Moses wasn't physically, it was verbally. As the glory of God passed by, God was revealing Himself. The things about Him that make Him glorious to Moses. And the prominent, the most prominent things that He spoke about Himself on that occasion were His grace and His truth. If you're familiar with the passage, you may remember it in terms of the words, Mercy and faithfulness. They're synonyms for the two words that are translated here in John 1. Grace and truth. So it makes sense again that in seeing the glory of Jesus, the apostles saw one who was full of grace, mercy, love, loving kindness, 
blessing. And they saw one who was full of, full of truth. Truth here being the word faithfulness, steadfastness, the, the unchanging nature of God. We beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. And when I think about the life of Jesus, I can't think of two better words to summarize who he was and what he was all about than these two words, grace and truth. Grace and truth. Don't people have a tendency to to go to one extreme or another? Don't sometimes we have the tendency when there are multiple things taught about God or about Christ to emphasize one to the exclusion of another? And it works that way with these two things. You've got some people who all they know about God is grace. And so they talk about grace and mercy and loving kindness and they they trample over the grace of God. They take lightly the grace of God. They turn it into cheap grace. That's really robbed of all its power and its biblical significance. And they know nothing of truth that defines the proper bounds in which we should understand grace. But then you have some folks, and they're not the grace folks at all. They're the truth folks. You know the ones I'm talking about? I was in an Old Testament class in seminary and a guy was going on about the people in his church and what he wished God would do to him and all this. And after he went off for a few minutes, our professor looked at him and said, I'm just taking a shot in the dark that you don't have the spiritual gift of mercy. You've got, got these folks and they're, they're truth folks. They know the truth of the Word of God. But they live it in such a way and they speak it in such a way that it really doesn't have much impact on others because there's no grace to go along with it. When we talk about Jesus, let's be careful to present Him and to understand Him for all that He is. He's not one or the other. He's not half of one and half of the other. He is full of both grace and truth. In our culture, it's important to be reminded that the two are not mutually exclusive. We can be a people of truth, but who live it and who share it with grace. And who even as we talk about the truth, are quick to understand and communicate. That we're saved by the grace of God. John continues to talk about how Jesus revealed the grace and truth of God. In verses 16 and 17. Look at it there. It says, indeed, we have received grace after grace from His fullness. He's full of it. Look, you don't ever have to worry about exhausting the grace of God. Have any of you ever been there before? Well, I've messed up one too many times. I'm not even going to talk to God about this. I'm going to hang out away from God for a while. Let Him forget about all the times I've messed up. And finally, I'll come back like my old whoop dog to God. You're not going to exhaust the grace of God. 
when we sin and stay away from God for fear that we've exhausted His grace, we've just fallen back into the trap of thinking that we get to God by our righteousness and by our works. Let your sin drive you to the grace of God. And there you'll find a full supply of the grace of God. Full. We have received grace after Grace. How many of you like going to the beach? Cheryl thinks if you know Jesus when you die, that's where you go. I know some others that think that way too. And maybe you will go to a beach. I don't know. I'm guessing it's not going to be Orange Beach or Daytona Beach or something like that. One of the things that's amazing at the beach is the waves. And they just keep coming. Wave after wave after wave after wave. Anybody picking up on where I'm going with this? That's the idea that's being communicated here. From His fullness we have received grace after grace after grace after grace. And it never stops. One of my best friends in the ministry used to translate this verse in this way. God has poured buckets of grace on us. Bucket after bucket. Grace after grace. Blessing after blessing. Kindness after kindness. Mercy after mercy. It's from the fullness of Jesus. His fullness of God, His fullness of the grace of God because He is God that we have received this. And He gives an example of our receiving grace after grace through Christ. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Now I want you to remember that this morning we are talking about how the Word, Jesus, revealed God. The Bible is the revelation of God to us. Apart from the Bible, apart from God revealing Himself to us in this book that we call the Bible, we might know generic things about God, but they wouldn't be nearly sufficient for salvation. And even if they were, we wouldn't get it. Because as God has revealed Himself in creation in our conscience, Romans chapter 1 says all of us are prone to turning that into an idolatry of sorts, where we end up worshiping a God that's made after our image instead of us being made after His image. God has been, from the beginning of time, revealing Himself. And one of the primary ways that He revealed Himself before the coming of Jesus was the law. You do know that the law is a reference to the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are based on the character of God. That's what's being communicated to us in in those laws. The character of God, the type of person that God is, and the type of person that God expects people to be. And in a way, those, those ten laws summarizing the, the character of God communicate to us what we've got to be like to get to God on our own. 
there's a problem. We aren't like that. And we break those laws. If not the letter of those laws, then the spirit of every one of those laws. It was a revelation of God. But the law, the Ten Commandments, weren't the final revelation of God. That ought to be clear to us in the way that the people that had it given to them responded to it. They responded to it wrongly, didn't they? Through Moses, God revealed Himself in a way through the law. But there was always going to be a better way. Aren't you glad for that? And if you've read through the Old Testament recently and read through the law and all the laws that break off from it, aren't you glad that God chose a better way, had another way to reveal Himself? The law reveals the character of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the judgment of God. But, there were things about God that could only be revealed through the coming of Jesus. Grace and truth among them. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that there's no grace in the Old Testament. There is. I'm not saying there's no grace in the law. There is. The very fact that God didn't kill Adam and Eve immediately is an example of grace. The fact that He did not kill off the Israelites more than once is an example of grace. The provision of sacrifices to teach them about the coming of Jesus is grace. And there's truth in all of that as well. But in the working of God, He's worked in different ways at different times. Some people call it dispensations. And in the fullness of time would come Jesus, who would be the complete revelation of God. The way that we really understand the grace and the truth of God is through Jesus. The Word was made flesh to reveal The grace and the truth of God. Well, that brings us to one final thing. And that is that the Word made flesh revealed the fullness of God. Now, you won't see the word fullness in verse 18, but you see it earlier in the passage. I do think it communicates what's being said to us in in verse 18. Look there real quick. It says, no one has ever seen God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says about God, He lives in unapproachable light. I find it strange in our day and age when people are making boo-coodles of money off supposed visions of God, that in the Bible, seeing God would be the equivalent of getting a death certificate. You think anybody in the Bible was going, God, we want to see you in all of your glory? No. When God came and hung out with Moses in the tent, and His face shone so brightly from just talking to God like a friend, the whole crowd of Israel said, cover up your face. We can't take it. And His face wasn't the glory of God. It was just an afterglow of spending time with God. No one 
has ever seen God. There are things about God unseen. There is a quality of God in which He is invisible to the world. When Gideon thought he saw God or a messenger of God, he wanted to die. When Isaiah did the same, he thought he would surely perish. When Peter realized that Jesus was God, he wanted Jesus to get away for fear that he would die as well. When John the Apostle saw Jesus in the first chapter of the Revelation, he fell on his face as a dead man. No one has ever seen God. You say, well, what about Moses? It says he talked face to face to him. That's not literal. That's human language. It means it talked to him like a friend talks to another friend. You say, what about when he asked to see his glory? Well, we've already talked about that. He didn't see the fullness of God's glory. Here, though, it's saying that while no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the the begotten, the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of God, the one who's at the Father's side. Do you remember verse 1 in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. With there is like this. The one who is at the Father's side, speaking of close communion and relationship. This one, the Word, Jesus, He has revealed Him. You remember that time in John chapter 14, where Philip said, Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And Jesus must have been terribly disappointed. And he said, have I been with you all this time and you haven't gotten it yet? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Speaking of our world, people love the fantastic, the miraculous, the supernatural. One of the things that motivates people to, to, to say that they've seen God is they want to be special in that way. But there's something flawed beyond what I've already referenced in that whole mindset. It's the same flaw of Philip. When you cry out to see God in that sort of way, it's almost as if you're saying Jesus isn't enough. God had a plan in which he would reveal himself to the world and it would be through Jesus. And folks, every single one of us, I want us to get it. He's enough. If you aren't satisfied with what you see of God in Jesus, you'll never be satisfied. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning verses. says, in times past, God spoke to us in a lot of different ways. And I'm paraphrasing here, but in these last days... He has spoken to us through His Son. His final word, revealing all the fullness of God, is Jesus. And we can join with John, who at the end of his book of Revelation wrote, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The work of the Word, the work of Jesus was to reveal God. To reveal God's glory, His grace and His truth, His fullness. 
And that does wrap up the story of Jesus from these first 18 verses of John 1. But you do know that the story of Jesus goes on. It's the gospel. Good news of who he is and what he's doing. And I hope that you understand that the story of Jesus ultimately brings us back to our own story. What is your story? Even if you don't recognize it, your story intersects with the story of Jesus. And that's true for everyone. He's that great stone in the road that no one can avoid. What's your story? Have you turned from your sins to Jesus in faith that he will save you? If not, do so today. Have you publicly acknowledged Jesus as Lord and Savior through baptism? Following your conversion? If not, maybe you want to talk about that today or set up a time to do that. Are you serving Jesus as a member of his body, which in our case would be a local church? If not, we'd love for you to talk with us. I'd love for you to talk with me about becoming a member of of this church. We're working with folks right now on it. Are you living in obedience and love and perseverance? Christian, are you continually repenting? Because we need to. And are you continually trusting on Jesus to save you? He's the only one who can. Are you sharing the story of Jesus?